Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side, And from the City of Champions, the reigning World Series champions, Atlanta Braves. I'm You're Kurt from Brooklyn Atlanta. Nets, no? Okay, no, no, dude, they're so bad. They're How is such a good team so bad? So bad. <laughs> the Athletic just wrote an article. You know when the Athletic's writing Brooklyn Nets articles, you know things are bad. So RIP to your team there. Oh, God. <laughs> we can't have anything happy. Just all fake. So, uh, Go ahead. Uh, can we have a discussion? Can we have a talk? Sure. <laughs> I, I I need a therapy session a little bit here. So I've been reading that how much information we're exposed to. And so apparently the the subconscious mind can process like 11 million bits of information per second. But the conscious mind, like the real part of the mind, can only process like 40 or 50. So that's my framework for this rant. Sure. Because I know you like frameworks. I love talking about signaling the noise. And I've just been having a lot of conversations with clients, with management, with like strategy type people. Everyone's talking about net new. Yep. Everyone wants to grow. Yep. And I just can't help but feeling like there's nothing new under the sun. It's just, it's like pick a strategy and execute it. That's kind of it. Like, is, is that oversimplification? You have to have some sort of niche. And then, you know, multiple ways to go after that niche, right? It's kind of that simple. I I think that's true. I think conceptually, you're right. What come to my mind is like the new way of thinking about it. The two things that come that I think are a little bit more new is one, the technology that you can utilize now is improving. You've got this target market. How do you service them? How do you get their attention? But I do think um, the experience of people understanding like, what Amazon's done, what Apple has done, what these really these tech companies have done with client experience that have completely disrupted whole industries. And as it, it being in financial services and financial professionals, like we have to start thinking a little bit outside the box for being being able to to elevate those types of experiences. But you're right. It's all coming back to something simple, which is that like you've got to you've got to service a target market better. There's nothing new there. There's, I, I agree with you on that front. Yeah. And, and even the elevated service thing, like we talk about Bucky's as an example to take a commoditized thing and like, like kind of have the Amazon effect, meaning an elevated experience with, with a commoditized service. Uh, that's fairly new. Like that's, that's not fully ingrained in the DNA of high financial professionals think. I don't think, right. I think that's more, that's more cutting edge. Not, yeah. not a lot of folks are, are thinking or, do, or doing like that. But I mean, if your if your goal is really just like net new, like there's just there's template on top of template on top of template on how to do that. Well, what got me going down this rant was um, so it was the weekly email from Julie Littlechild, mm-hmm. who runs Absolute Engagement, who we had on the show. Love Julie. Uh, she talked about the referral gap, one of the most powerful things I think we've talked about. But in her weekly blog post, she references a Michael Kitches. Um, am I saying that right? Kitch, I think Kitches. So. Everyone uh, knows who that guy is. So yeah, think, yeah, he's yeah. everywhere. He's he's got epic uh, uh, photos. You ever see him in like his LinkedIn or, or or like on a on a picture? He's always like sort of like no one could see this is a podcast, but he's always like holding his chin and like thinking dramatically, <laughs> like a high school graduation picture. Michael, I hope you come on <laughs> our show, to, but we love your pictures. Continue and sorry. always the blue shirt. Yeah. So the article is why now one question financial advisors should ask to convert prospects to clients. That's the title of it. Okay. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, if, if Julie's writing about it, it's going to be interesting. Yep. Um, and I thought what this was going to be was a hook, right? Like you've, you've got some sort of lead gen process. You've got these prospects, but this was like the why now, like the, to, to really establish a sense of urgency. Right. Completely wrong. 
the why now was really getting so we've talked recently about the coaching work we do is really just asking questions right it's being able to ask good questions colby it's all about asking better questions like par analysis all about being able to ask better questions what they what they're getting at is the why now question is hey mr or mrs prospect you've we've engaged at some level for some reason before why now like what's going on in your life what what's the experiences that you have had what are the experiences you are hoping to have and completely flipping it back on the prospect of why are we sitting here and have this conversation i thought it was a great way to flip the script because i that's that's how I approach this whole coaching thing is, is I just want to be able to ask better questions. And really, I want to get root cause stuff. I, who, I forget who was who that was that just said, like, like ask deeper questions. It's like, oh, what's your target? What's your niche market? Uh, dentist. It's like, no, do, do better. Go deeper. Yeah, why? Yeah. Why? Well, well, why? Yeah. Why? yeah. So, what's your but, expertise But connect there? the dots here for me because you started saying there's not a oh, lot of I'm not of sure new... I will be able to do that. Well, we're going to try. <laughs> so connect back to me. And I guess what you're reflecting on is there's not a lot new – there's the simple ways to go about growing your business, but connect me to the article. So did you find this to be something new or revolutionary? Or? I, th- I think the, the takeaway is go Google search this article yeah. and then think, put yourselves in your prospects shoes, right? Like don't, don't come hot and heavy about how your investment management is elite or like wh- whatever yeah. your value proposition is. Like really be empathetic and put your yourself in the shoes of the prospect. And that that's the point of the that's the why now. That's yeah. It's it's the prospect's why now, not your why now, not your right. catalyst for change. I see. It's like you're talking to this person for a reason. Like get down to that root cause. Go deeper and understand what's really going on under the hood. You know, is that adage that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Uh, and yeah. I'm just trying. It's a reminder of that. New new relationships. As quickly as possible, show that, yes, I know my stuff, but I want to give two craps about what's going on in this conversation and in, and in your world. That's the why now. That's, that's, that's it. me tr- attempting to put that person, uh, put myself in that person's shoes. So the, so the takeaway for our audience is, one, Google the article. Look at your process for prospecting, business development, um, even client service, and say- is there any way I can make this more about them and less about us? Is that your challenge to the audience? Great summation. Great summation. Look of at my rant. I'm yes. useful. For, I'm not always useful, but I feel like I feel like I'm starting to speak curt. I think I could speak curt. <laughs> I think careful I can. what you wish for. <laughs> Speaking of clients and client service and engagement and new business, uh, we have Curtis Brown on from Supernova Consulting, and we did a a, a couple of episodes on Supernova. Essentially, a guy by the name of Rob Knapp, who, who had Supernova, saw a challenge um, that you know financial professionals just had too many households and they couldn't provide the experience. And so he wrote and created a process called Supernova at Merrill Lynch, uh, implemented those process, saw an amazing results of FAs that would shrink and then grow with, with better experience in their target markets. And then he, you know, he wrote a book about it. He has an organization now. But there was a second book called Supernova Teams. And that was written by our guest today, Curtis Brown. Um, Curtis spent 30 plus years at Merrill Lynch, some very, very high level positions, including not just, you know, managing, you know, complexes, et cetera, but reporting directly to the chairman of Merrill Lynch. So he's been around a long time. He wrote the book on teams. He's now literally. Yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's a great book. And by the way, if anybody wants that, reach out to us. If you like Curtis's interview, we can absolutely get you a copy of the book. Maybe even get him to sign it. Um, but anyway, so it's it, that's that's who's on our show today, and uh, it was a really really fun interview. The concepts that we covered are you know are the classics are about you know the evolution in the industry, about why client experience is important, how to effectively team. Uh, about the modern wealth practice. We hope you enjoy it. Um, And without further ado, here's our interview with Curtis Brown. So welcome, Curtis. We appreciate you joining us on the show. Well, it's good to be with you, uh, Steve. So, uh, you know, thanks for having me. 
We're excited to get to talk to you, and we're gonna we're gonna start at the beginning. I spent a lot of time uh, with your Supernova Teams book, and I didn't realize when I was talking to you that you were actually the author of it. But we'll start with the beginning, and uh, you talked about in the intro to that book your father being a military man, and I know that had a big influence on on you and shaped how you view the world. So talk a little bit about that. I would refer to him as a, as a military man, but I refer to myself as a military brat. Um, because I reported into the first sergeant uh, till I was almost 19 years old. Wow. And uh, living on my own. And, you know, while my father did uh, command a, a lot of respect and discipline, he, he had a soft heart and was a lot of fun to be around. And if you saw the movie uh, with Robert Duvall, The Great Santini, uh, you know, there were some similarities regarding family and moving around from place to place. And so we would all pile in the station wagon and we would go from place to place. In 1962, and I know I'm dating myself a little bit, he uh, gets his uh, orders to go to Vietnam. And um, I had no idea where that place was. It wasn't in the news. It wasn't in the media. But uh, he came up to me and said, look, I'm going to a place called Vietnam, and uh, you're going to move up to uh, Yakima, Washington, and I want you to take care of your your mother and your brothers and your sisters, and I'll see you in 13 months. Wow. Okay. So, you know, he goes off uh, to Vietnam, and uh, then when he returns, we hop in the station wagon, and we go to... Fort Benning, Georgia. There you go. And I'm thinking, you know, where in the heck is that? And at that time, uh, I go through the 7th and 8th grade and then uh, the ninth grade. And by that time, down in Georgia, it was like school integration. Myself and 35 other students, we integrated uh, Baker High School. And... Um, you know, we matriculate through the high school, and then in my junior year, my father says, I'm going back to Vietnam. It's in 1968. We hop in the station wagon, and we drive to San Diego, California, to live near uh, an uncle uh, who had just retired from the Navy. So we moved about eight times as a kid. Wow. I remember uh, in terms of some of his teachings was that before I could go out to play, I had to do my chores. And uh, my father, being the military man that he was, used terms like, uh, I would ask him, look, can I go out and play? And he said, uh, uh, before you can go out and play, you needed to get your room squared away, and then you needed to clean the bathroom police up the yard, and then help washing the car. I got used to uh, being very disciplined, and he would also come in and inspect my work before I could go out. So that's what it was like, uh, you know, being in a military environment with the discipline and everything that goes along with it. I mean, that's how I hope my kids would describe me one day. It's like firm, but fun. Uh, right. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to, so which is a tough balance. You know, I wrote a dedication in the book uh, to my father, and uh, this stems from a conversation we were having. We were, we were like together, and, you know, and he says, you know, I wish I had have done more for you. I'm thinking, you know, what else could you have done? I said, you gave me some important attributes that have stayed with me for the for all of my life, you know. And th these were like attitude, having the right attitude that I could go out and succeed, and and the belief, the belief in myself and what I could accomplish, and then of course the sense of commitment, knowing that if I started something, you know, I needed to finish it. And so I said, you gave me those three things. And that's what I expressed to my father. So um, a lot of kudos to, to, to the way he brought me up. 
you were the first African-American branch manager and well, as you were describing it, you were the first in all of your roles at Merrill Lynch. So let's can you kind of take us back and to your professional upbringing? How did you get started and what did your career in financial services look like? I spent six years as a uh, a producer in a large office in uh, San Francisco, California. And uh, enjoyed it, uh, developed a, a decent clientele, um, had some recognition, made the recognition clubs. And uh, then I asked if I could take a shot at, at management. And at those times, you had to go through a very rigorous assessment center process to get into management. Well. There were 20 people that went through this process, which was a series of management games and exercises um, secluded on Glen Cove in Long Island. And uh, I feel like I was going into a black hole. I didn't know what yeah, the like outcome the CIA was. or something. Yeah, it was like, uh, it, was, it was pretty quiet, but very nerving. Um, and at the, the first night you're there, you start getting evaluated and going through a series of games. This lasted for about three and a half days. And, uh, I was, uh, one of 10 that made it and got accepted, uh, to go into a, uh, management career and start my management career as a sales manager in Washington, D.C., I stayed in Washington approximately three and a half years and was successful there. Probably hired over 45. After three and a half years, I was asked to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I go to another assignment. And these assignments were go in, fix it, make them productive, and... uh, you know, the two places I said in my career I would never want to work, one was Michigan and the other was New York City, and I ended up working in both those places. So <laughs> um, after my, I spent four years in Michigan and uh, doubled the size of the sales force uh, as well as um, the assets and the, uh, the revenue during that time. After having some success there, I was asked to go down to St. Petersburg, Florida, and run initially two offices, and then there were seven. I spent four years there doing some of the same things, you know, build it up, fix it, you know, move move the operation forward, establish that vision. Uh, Was asked to then uh, go to... Uh, Princeton, New Jersey, and become the national sales manager for private client. So that was my first kind of role at the headquarters of private client and uh, working in that kind of corporate environment without being, you know, uh, out in the the, the branch world. So uh, after performing in that role, I received a phone call to... um, come to New York and meet the chairman and the president of Merrill Lynch. Uh, Dave Kamansky called me, um, and uh, he's deceased now, but David called me uh, and said, look, um, we have an interesting role uh, that we would uh, uh, like you to fulfill, and that would be to come up and be the chief of staff uh, working uh, directly with me and the president and, uh, and the other members of the firm's executive committee. And so in that role, I got to see a lot of the strategic side of, of Merrill Lynch. And it was just an awesome strategic learning experience. Uh, We made about five acquisitions during that time. 
And so you get a firsthand knowledge of, of how the firm was expanding its global footprint and making strategic acquisitions. So, so I did that job for uh, about two years, went back to the private client world, which I loved, um, and uh, ended up running another large branch, which I more than doubled in terms of FAs and assets and revenue. And then I was promoted to come out to the West Coast to uh, run the Pacific West region. And then uh, in '09, I retired uh, from Merrill Lynch. That's one heck of a career. So I've got a couple of questions for you. <laughs> I'm glad the audience gets to hear that because, you know, we're going to be pulling a lot of wisdom out of you. And I want them to understand who it is that we're actually talking to and the, and the deep experiences you've had. Okay. You talk about going to these branches and a lot of times turning them around, uh, growing profits, growing assets. Clearly, you had a method when you went into these places. What were you looking to improve? How did you diagnose? What, what were the levers you were pulling to make, to make these improvements at the branch level? The first thing you do when you go in, you, you assess the people. You spend like your first 60 days going out to breakfast, lunch, and dinner with every single person, trying to get to know them as people. And you've got your yellow pad in hand, and you ask them questions like, what would make this just the greatest place to come to work? And you're writing it down, you're taking notes, and they're giving you an earful. Um, they're telling you that, you know, Management is not very visible. Management isn't helping my career. You know, I need to be developed. Um, I want to make more money, but I, you know, I don't want to kill myself in the process. Um, you know, we need to gain more knowledge. We need to be better educated in terms of our platform. And so, uh, and you're learning a little bit about morale. And so you're writing all this down and you're taking these notes and then you, you, you come back and you say, hey, look, I listened, I heard you. Uh, these are some of the things I'm going to be able to fix in the first 30 days. These are some of the things that are going to take me 60 to 90. And these are some of the things we're going to have to work on together, you know, over the course and scope of the next year or so. And so you get a sense of people's attitudes and what, they, what their needs are, and, and then you, you, you start working with them immediately, being very hands-on and focusing in on their development. As you reflect back on this Merrill career, um, what are you most proud of? Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's really a, a great question. Um, I think mostly the business for managers and leaders is about the psychic income that you receive based on seeing people take off and, and, and do well and feel good. And um, so I'm, I'm proud of the lives that I touched, the people that I coached, you know, you see marriages, you see birthdays, you see milestones. Sadly, you see funerals, you know, making a difference and the joy, the psychic income, seeing people achieve. And I hired a very diverse population, and I was really, really proud of that. There was um, one female I hired in Washington that... Um, came up from the Carolinas. She didn't have any money. I gave her a job. She had taken correspondence courses to develop, you know, some acumen in terms of financial services. So I said, May, I might be crazy, but this woman has a lot of drive, a lot of ambition, a lot of motivation. And I was inspired by her story. Well, do you know she ended up becoming a million-dollar producer, sending one 
one kid to Dartmouth, the other one to NYU. Uh, the one at Dartmouth ended up coming to work for the firm and becoming a million-dollar producer. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, and, and these are the kind of stories that you just can't make up, that make you feel good, make you feel proud that you, you did something. It always comes back to people, doesn't it? At, at least for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So um, I want to kind of pivot to, to your, your coaching wisdom. And, okay. you know, having be literally interacted with probably hundreds of teams, right. I'm just curious if you've noticed kind of that X factor, like, or is there, is there something that separates truly elite teams from those that are not? Well, you know, earlier I, I spoke about attitude, uh, belief, and commitment. I think you got to have those three things, first of all, you know, you got to have the right attitude, uh, if you're coming in and you want to be complacent, rest on your laurels, then you're not going to get to elite status. They're always learning and always trying to get better. And they focus on several key niche markets and they become like experts at them. Um, they're all on teams. It's almost like they have a stopwatch you know, and they're timing themselves on the race. Uh, they got that goal that they're focused on and they're relentlessly pursue, pursuing that goal. Um, a lot of your elite advisors develop more of what I call a concierge practice and they deliver this unparalleled, you know, client experience. Uh, they have a vision for the for the um, for what they desire, and and they execute extremely uh, well, and they seem to get things done through others, and they're not afraid to invest money, uh, in and time and energy in themselves and their practices. I just got the visual when as you were describing that. There's um. There's a show that with a guy named Marcus Lemonis who okay. takes struggling businesses and turns them over, but he's always he's always hammering people about like knowing their numbers, knowing their business. And right. the person you just described, I think is the type of person that side and I gravitate towards. It's like I, I know where I'm at and I'm not comfortable where I'm at. I want to get better. Whether you know, and that's that's part of why this exists, right? For people that want to advance themselves personally and professionally. Um, but that's always a personality type that, that I'm, I'm drawn to. So that's, that's fun to right. hear you say that. They're, they're, they're like entrepreneurs um, inside the, you know, an entrepreneurial type organization. And they regard this practice as a business and they take ownership in it. So, so you're right, right. absolutely. How would you describe your style of coaching? Well, the my coaching style is one of uh, communication. Um, and that means just listening and hearing um, where people are, what frustrates them. And we'll go into this later when we talk about pain points. Where are they experiencing the pain? You know, where do they want to go from a productivity improvement standpoint. So you start off asking a lot of questions and you're taking notes. Um, and in Supernova, what we try to do is we try to focus in on all the key areas where people experience pain. Part of that is segmentation. Um, many advisors have way too many relationships. Um, and, 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 and as a result, they got to deliver a kind of a commodity service approach. There's a lack of organizational process. And so we try to help them with that. Client acquisition. They've stopped growing the upper end of their, of their practice, of their business. So we try to help them with that. And then the other has to do with leadership and the delegation of duties and responsibilities and creating process so that the rainmakers, you know, have time 
to grow their practice. So that's what we try to focus on, you know, in uh, in Supernova. Can you give a little bit of the background of Supernova and then talk a little bit about why you decided to join that organization specifically? Well, you know, I've known uh, Rob Knapp, who was the founder of Supernova for a long time. He wrote a book called The Supernova Advisor. But uh, Rob was one of these um, branch managers that was excelling in almost every strategic initiative. But when it came time for the client experience, um, he was looking at his numbers and he was suffering. So while they were doing great in asset gathering, uh, they were going, clients were going out the back end. Uh, he and his sales manager got together, a guy named Jim Walker, who I actually hired in Washington, D.C., uh, and they were in Indianapolis together, and they started to pick apart you know, the problem areas uh, associated with productivity improvement, and um, and and also teamed up with uh, Harvard, who did a study on supernova, and as a result of improving processes, understanding how to create a concierge practice, uh, supernova uh, was born, and when Rob retired he decided to build a consulting practice around those concepts. I decided that, uh, you know, look, I've been working and implementing a lot of those practices myself. And so I decided after I retired to uh, go to work with, uh, with Rob Knapp. You know, as you think about the teams you're working with right now, right. where are you spending most of your time lately? Well, you know, the common problems that we see are uh, have to relate to segmentation. Too many clients. You can't deliver uh, a concierge service if you've got 150 relationships. The studies that we did indicated that clients wanted someone to speak to them, whether or not they always agree but they do want the, the client contact once a month. So what was born out of that was this concept called 1242, where you deliver a monthly call, you have four reviews, two of them are telephonic, two of them are in person, a one-hour response to problems with a 24-hour resolution and an eye toward planning and intergenerational uh, planning. And so we found that a lot of the folks that we were coaching just didn't have those kinds of processes uh, in place. And uh, so that's, that's the one problem. The other was basically uh, winging it with no plan. You know, they show up every day, but they're winging it. They don't have a plan. Um, the lack of organizational process um, finding that out. The final thing is just complacency. Uh, complacency happens over a time where people become overwhelmed, don't think that they can really make a move to improve, and so they get used to doing things the same way over and over again. We had a previous guest on our podcast that had the saying, um, niches get riches. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Side and I have battled over whether it's a niche or a, or a niche. Um, so I'll, I'll, let, <laughs> I'll let you weigh in on that. I know it's important, but why is it important? And, and how, you, how do you define a niche? Well, you know, it, it, you know if you had a, a shotgun, you know, you, you're taking this scatter approach. And you know, if you have a rifle and you got a scope, you're 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 aiming specifically at something. So the question becomes, do you want to become a master of 20 different markets or do you want to master a few and know everything there is to know about those markets? So, you know, one of the markets that that I love is is the the business owner 
you know, the small business owner. And the reason I like them is they they understand risk, they know how to make decisions, and they got lots of issues to deal with, whether it's retaining key employees, um, you know, looking at cash flow management, or, um, you know, looking at tax minimization strategies. Now, that's a wide and vast market. You could decide that within that subset of entrepreneurs that you're going to work with uh, folks in, in a service capacity, folks that are contractors, plumbers, engineers. You can decide what subset of the niche markets that you want to work in. So let's take the financial advisor market for Supernova. You know, where do I get my information? I get it by looking at Advisory Hub, Trust Advisor, Investment News, Financial Planning Magazine, so that I can develop a wherewithal about what is it, what is impacting the market that I work in. Well, financial advisors have to do the same thing. You know, they have to understand by reading, looking at journals. If you're going to go to the work with lawyers, have you picked up an ABA journal to really figure out what's going on in that market? You know, can you highlight an article and send it, you know, to one of the lawyers that you're working with? Right. So you've got to discover what are the pain points and each of the markets you decide to deal with. You can't do that with 20 different markets. You can do it with maybe three. When I have um, large teams that I coach, one of the things that I do is I get them to narrow their focus on specific and particular markets. I mean, it's a big deal for a team to become an expert in three different markets. We live in a world of mass commoditization of products and services. So narrowing your focus as a financial advisor so that you're not rendering yourself as giving a commodity experience is important. You mentioned before, and you mentioned a couple of times about commoditization of the experience and how important it is to uh, to deliver an elevated experience. Talk about how you work with teams on that. What does an elevated experience look like? Just some general thoughts about client experience broadly. Well, uh, one of the analogies I, I, I like to use is um, if you want to, if you're traveling and you want a good night's sleep, you got a lot of choices out there. Okay. And I'm not bad-mouthing any particular hoteler, but let's say you decide you want to sleep at a Motel 8, and you arrive late, you check in, and you're hungry, and you want a good night's sleep, and you're hearing the trucks and the cars go through all night long, and you call the front desk and you ask, uh, yeah, I'd like to get something to eat. And they tell you there's a vending machine on the third floor. Thank you for helping me relive my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) So that is a type of experience. Right. Okay. And then there's the Ritz-Carlton experience. You arrive late. Your bed is turned down. You know, they, they, they got the water available for you. You call the front desk and said, I'd like to get something to eat. The chef is on duty and there's The lights turn on when you walk in the room. Yeah, that's right. The light is turned on when you walk into the room and it's like, you know, what would you like? And it would be my pleasure to serve you and to help you. I hear those words. It's, it'll be my pleasure. It'll be my pleasure. Yeah. So- you know, the, the concierge service is what we are trying to build within the practice where that experience is bar none better than the experience that the client might get elsewhere or with another team. 
In some of your work, you've talked about this emotional connection with prospects. Can you tell me more about that? If you ever tried to uh, position a product or a service and you walked away and that person didn't seem to get it or get you, you know, most of the time it's because you really didn't establish that emotional connection or rapport. Um, that's why face-to-face meetings are so critical because you can make some observations about people. I remember going into um, this, this owner of a huge furniture store and he had a collection of uh, Civil War and World War II memorabilia. Being the Army brat that I was, I was very interested in that. So I started asking him questions about how he acquired that uh, and, and, and his interest in history and um, just really getting to know this individual as a real person. And so what we have to do is we can't always come out, pull out our six shooters. I got this solution for your problem. Get to know the person as a human being. Find out what their likes and dislikes are. Find out if they got kids. How important is that to them that their kids go to college? Or find out if there's some altruism in their background where they want to do something for a foundation. Find out what they do in their spare time. Are they, do they like to fish? Where do they like to vacation? You are trying to get to know people as real people. And that's what establishing that emotional connection is really all about. Put the six shooter away. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Did you do you find that a lot of financial professionals struggle with that that they that they they spend some time there but then they're right into the solution? Do you find that people don't spend enough time there? Yeah, you know, in the mind of of of, of many clients and prospects, that they're thinking, you don't know me, you don't know who I am, and um, they may buy from you, but the first person that comes around that establishes a rapport, creates client turnover, connects with them. It it creates turnover. I want to get into some topics around your book, the Supernova book that you co-authored, the team's book. And in fact, anyone that's listening, we're going to buy, you know, a bunch of these books, reach out to us. uh, We'll get you a copy. Before we get into some of our final questions, Curtis, where can people find you? How do people connect with you or or tap into Supernova? They could... um, go on to supernovaconsulting.com and they'll be able to find us there. They can uh, get in touch with us via email, um, you know, Curtis, C-U-R-T-I-S dot Brown, B-R-O-W-N, at supernovaconsulting.com. That's my email address. So they can get get in touch with me uh, that way. Let's get into the Supernova Teams book and start with a pretty straightforward question. You know, why is teaming so beneficial or so important? The size of the platforms at these firms have grown exponentially. They're huge. So, you know, how can one person, one person could say, hey, look, I got portfolio management, but now all the permutations of portfolio management that resides with these firms, the holistic approach to wealth management, the complete plethora of their platforms, products, and services, both on asset management, liability management, have become so enormous that one person, one person can't do justice trying to meet the needs of a client. So the age of the sole practitioner, in my opinion, is so outdated and has given rise to fully functional and dynamic uh, teams 
Excellent. And there's uh, here's a challenging question. I'm sure you've seen this in your time uh, at Merrill Lynch and your coaching career afterwards. How do you address and deal with team conflict, team dysfunction? What's your approach there? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's probably uh, a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> so let's just take one of the dysfunctions, which is um, uh, there's this elephant in the room, and nobody wants to address it. Okay, it's a problem. And um, the person who wants to address it is afraid to address it because if they speak up, they will get lambasted. And so guess what? They don't speak up anymore. They keep their mouths shut. Interesting. I was at a manager's meeting once, led by... Top, top leader, and um, he uh, was talking about planning, and uh, the question, so somebody raised their, their hand to ask a question about execution, and he got blasted for asking the question. Then the leader says, uh, Okay, who else would like to ask a question? <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> well, the room was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And so what we're talking about here is the free-spirited dialogue, if done in a respectful way, that can help improve team dynamics. Yeah. That's what we're really talking about. And so teams have dysfunctions like that the 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 absence of trust the absence of accountability you know we've got you know performance numbers that we want to hit but joe's not paying attention joe's off the radar we got to talk to joe why is that happening you know how do we get accountability because if we can't get that accountability it impacts the rest of the team Okay, if you don't deliver the proposal that we need in a timely fashion, Mary, it impacts our ability to make an effective presentation. So every team member, you know, has a role and a responsibility, and every team member has to feel that their role and their contribution is valued. And if it isn't, it can lead to team dysfunction. Hmm. So great question. And then, of course, just the, 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 the one team I was working with, they, they really didn't like each other. <laughs> okay? That's a problem. That's a problem. They were going on and lots of conflict. And it was appropriate um, for the team – to uh, separate yeah. into two different pieces. And now everybody's happy. Yeah. That happens all the time. That, yeah, absolutely. Well, Curtis, thank you for your time today. You've been great. Um, like we mentioned, we um, if anyone wants access to the Supernova Teams book, reach out to us at thewholetruth@touchstonefunds.com. Uh, we'll be sure to get you a copy. Um, final question. If you're on a team... And you're interested in just kind of beginning to assess where you are as a team. Where would you recommend teams starting? Well, one of the one of the things in the book, uh, as a matter of fact, on on teams is there's a checklist in there. Mm. Uh, I'm a big believer that every team uh, needs to have a um, a business plan and strategy document that they pay attention to. Um, first they develop and then they pay attention to it every quarter. And um, we have a template uh, for that that we take our teams through. Um, but in the book is a checklist where they can look at that checklist and say, is our team doing these things to be fully effective? And if they aren't, then we're ready to help them and support them. That's great. So contact Supernova. 
Excellent. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for, for coming on. Costanza Corner is next. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. And welcome back. We are in our Costanza Corner, our final segment where we leave on a high note. You know what I keep reminding myself? I, I could almost live my life with the analogies of Seinfeld in the office. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about me, but- It says um, you're a great person. That's what it says. Uh, it says I like, I like cheap humor. <laughs> uh, well, so really quick one. So, uh, you know, the, tons of stuff going on in the world, particularly uh, in Eastern Europe right now. Uh, I saw online on Twitter, there's a guy that's posting up updates of what's going on in Ukraine. And it, he just posted that like thousands of people are using Airbnb to book places that they never intend on oh, actually using just so the this. hosts don't get, so, so the hosts don't take a bath. So, you know, a lot of, I think people are, a lot of money's moving to philanthropic, uh, like needs based efforts. Uh, over there. And this is just another angle that I hadn't even thought of that I thought was really thoughtful and just really shows how a lot of people are, are rallying around this cause. So I, I thought that was pretty uplifting. I saw that during the pandemic too, by the way, um, supporting mm. various venues that weren't open. So certainly not as dire as what's going on in the Ukraine by any means. I don't mean to compare the two, but you know, um, regular li listeners and friends may know I see a lot of live music and those venues were really, really struggling during the pandemic. And several of them sent out like, hey, buy tickets now. We're not open. That can be used in the future, but it'll keep this place open. And so I did some of that during the pandemic. Now it's certainly uplifting to see people support, you know, the Ukraine in that way. What a, a wonderful way to to sort of support something you want to support from afar, you know? That's it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.